Hello, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in today to the Inscape Quest podcast show. I am your host, Trudy Howley. Here I am talking with people about how they engage with their relationships, work, and passions. Please subscribe and share this show with a friend, and thanks to you, we can grow meaningful conversations together, one episode at a time. Andrew Jarvis is one of the most respected Shakespearean actors of his generation. He successfully established the King's Lynn Shakespeare Festival in Norfolk, England, where he now lives. Andrew has diversified from performing the Bard on occasion, playing such roles as Gandalf and Elrond in Lord of the Rings, and acting in many British films and television shows. As a theatre director, actor, generous teacher, he continues to promote the work of Shakespeare, his life's passion. There are so many ways people are learning to share their voices right now, and across two continents it is my pleasure as Andrew and I dive into a conversation about how important is use of the voice to him as a journeyman actor. We also explore Andrew's lifelong passion for Shakespeare. Well, to me, as a professional actor, but this is everything that happens on a stage, on film, on television, in performers, is to do with the voice. That is it. I've done over, uh, not lately, but over many years, a little of radio where, of course, in radio, that is the only thing you have, the only equipment, and you have to do everything by that. Uh, as an actor, in Shakespeare particularly, which is my uh, passion, it's about the voice and the text. It is the voice. It is the instrument. And so many, well, I must be horrible, but so many young actors I hear and see now haven't got an instrument. It is your Stradivarius. That's what you play. The physicality, the way you look, all that, that's part of it, of course. But it's what comes out of here. In our voice, in the choice of what we say, how we say it, when we say it, we reveal ourselves. When I meet a group, I do a lot of teaching in drama school, when I meet a lot of new students, and perhaps we'll be talking about character and what is character and how do we, what does that mean and how do we embody it as actors, etc. I often say to them, after about 10 minutes or quarter of an hour of the first meeting, I say, right, okay, you have formed an impression of me. How have you formed it? Well, okay, I've got long white hair. I'm wearing red cowboy boots. Okay, there's all sorts of eccentricities there, but put it into one side because, because they are just extras. You've got an impression about, about me already. Where does that come from? Well, I make stupid jokes. I swear a lot. Whatever, those might be the detail. But overall, the impression you are forming of me is because of what I've said, how I've said it, and when I've said it. You couldn't write it down the way I am but you're getting a picture. 
And that is what acting is about. That's how we reveal ourselves. So if you don't have an instrument as an actor that is capable of expressing a range of notes, volume, just the clarity of what you are saying, you are dead in the water. I say, I watch, spend my time watching young actors on television and thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. I can probably hear the words, but I can't make sense of it because they are not expressing it through their voices. So I'm interested to explore this in different directions. In particular, I'm struck by a review that was written about you in the Huffington Post a few years ago when you played Pinter in taking over Sir Patrick Stewart's role. The review focused on focus of Pinter's words rather than the celebrity partnership. Sir Patrick Stewart was not present. The reviewer said they had a profound shift in understanding the play's context when the mesmerizing actor is called out of the shadows and into the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Through the voice, you can elicit these different emotional responses in the audience when you are not a household name or have celebrity status, but you've got decades and decades of experience as a very well-respected Shakespearean actor. Well, I mean, what she's talking about is the fact that everybody can see him, McKellen and Patrick Stewart, and that's what the show was about. And it was. That was about two of the great knights and actors of our time. Suddenly one of them's taken away and it becomes about the play. Now, it is my job, and this is quite a hard quote, but it is my job to evoke emotion in an audience. But that is not the same as evoking it in myself. The great theatrical critic, Kenneth Tynan, who worked with Laurence Olivier at the old at the National Theatre, once put it into words and said, it is the job of an actor to elicit emotion in an audience, and these are important words, but not necessarily in himself. Now, when I'm often in an audience, there'll be somebody on stage sobbing and crying and carrying on, being emotional, and I will find myself thinking, oh, I do wish you'd shut up. And I wonder, shall I have a glass of wine or a glass of beer at the end of Because this woman's boring me to death, or this man. But then somebody else will say something which sends a shiver through me, but with not necessarily any emotional expression from them. If you think of, I'm startled all the time, news bulletins, where, you know, someone maybe has been in a terrible accident or been killed, and they talk to the relatives. Sometimes, okay, the relative might be crying, but a lot of the time they are not. They are talking about what it is like to be in their situation. I was watching somebody the other day, or a smile on their face, talking about the fact that their child had died, which at first you think, whoa, but actually the mistake we as actors make is to think that their words are the expression of emotion. They are not. Great, great Shakespearean called John Barton, who died a few years ago, who I was... John talked about 
Shakespeare and Soliloquy in particular are saying they are characters trying to talk about emotion, trying to come to terms with emotion, trying to understand what this knot that's in their stomach is. So it's the difference, say, between saying, if I'm watching Hamlet, and the famous soliloquy says that, uh, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and dissolve itself into a dew. He's actually saying, I wish it could disappear. I feel so terrible. Now, many actors will go, oh, that this too, too solid flesh, and they will try to show me what the feeling is. But if you just tell me what it is, if you do what John says and describe it, you say, oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. Then I see the inside. I see the knots in your stomach. You don't need to try and show me. And it's that problem that actors have, they're thinking they've got to show it. You don't. You're talking about it. So when I did No Man's Land, my job was to try and evoke emotion in the audience. I don't know how you do that. I haven't got a clue. When I was a young actor, I remember playing Ober on a Midsummer stream, and a friend of mine came to say it. And, and afterwards, he said to me, he was very nice about it, you know, but he said, oh, he said, the way you said that line, I can't remember what it was now, so he said, it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Now, when I thought back, I, I couldn't begin to tell you how I said it. I spoke the truth of the line talking about what Oberon was feeling. <clears throat> and he went, ah, ooh. And that's what you're after. So when I go out as, you know, as Patrick, deputy, I'm not interested in my own emotion. If it comes, it comes. Bill Nye, the famous filmmaker, said, emotion takes care of itself. You say the truth of the line. You talk to the other person. If you think in ordinary life, um, I, I say this to my students, people might say to you, hello, Andrew, how are you today? And I go, actually, I'm really fed up. Or you say, hello, Andrew, how are you? And you go, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. In both cases, I, you know, when I say I'm really unhappy, I don't try and find my unhappiness. I tell you I'm unhappy, but I might do it with a smile on my face. I tell you I'm feeling good, but I might do it very seriously. Because I'm not, I'm not trying as an individual to get my emotion out to you. I'm describing what it is to you. And it's, I believe it's like if you do that, the audience responds. And they do what Tynan's talking about. And you sobbing and crying does not make one little bit of difference. I love the way you've described <laughs> this to me um, because it makes sense to me as I work with people who begin to get in touch with their body sensations and those knots in their stomach, then they can start describing it. So it's not about using your body necessarily in a movement way, but understanding what the physical sensations are and connecting with those. And I'm and describing it, as you say, and trying to come to terms with it. What is it? What is it? Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt. I wish I could die. Yeah. But that's all the character's doing. He's not experiencing it. He's talking about what that knot is in his tummy and trying to get rid of it. What happens, because so many 
people in general tell me that they're afraid to speak up, they're afraid to say their truth. So even though they may be experiencing a knot in their stomach and they can connect what it's about, they're afraid to say it to friends or family members or bosses. So how do you as an actor and how do you as a director of other actors manage fear? Well, there's two things. I think if you, A, you've got what the playwright has written and he says that if, let's say, it's a soliloquy in Shakespeare, the character steps forward and talks to the audience. I always think of it and I tell my students that it's like a timeout. I can't carry on with my life until I've talked about this. It's rather like, again, I use this example, sometimes a student will come to me and say, Andrew, can we have a talk at lunchtime? And I'll say, yeah, of course. I'll meet up with them. I say, right, okay, what did you support? We've got this real problem. They would then talk for five, ten minutes, and I would not agree, encourage, but wouldn't actually contribute. And at the end of it, they'd say, oh, thank you so much. I feel so much better now. And that's like a soliloquy. Or it's like if you have a bad day at school or college, you go home and you say to your parents or your partner, this is what happened. And you tell them, don't make any difference, but you feel better for having told them. So in a play, you are given the instruction to share your thoughts. As an actor, one goes out there, this is the difference, I suppose, absolutely petrified. Every performance I give, I am petrified. I am torn between wanting to be anywhere else but where I am, standing in the wings of the theatre, at the same time as feeling very excited about wanting to go out there and share. But that's different because it's my job to go out and play what the what the author has given me. But as an individual, I experience exactly what you're talking about, which is as, as Andrew, I find it very hard to actually say, this is what I'm going through. Because you've got to have immense trust and faith and whatever in the, in the person you're talking to and whatever. So that, to me, that's quite natural. But it's feeling you're in an environment where you can say, can I just talk to you for a minute? I'll just tell you what my problem is. But do it in a way quite dispassionately. I don't know if that's possible. But You've been involved in theatre for many decades. Over 50. Over 50. <laughs> and one review... Yeah. One reviewer has called you a Shakespearean war horse. <laughs> and I know also that Sir Ian McKellen has called you his hero because I'm guessing you know as much, if not more, than him about Shakespeare. What is it about Shakespeare that is so alive for you? Well, I've had an interesting journey with Shakespeare because I hated it at school. We had bad teachers, as we all, some people do, who made it the most boring subject in the world. But yet at the same time, I used to, my parents took me to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford when I was very young. I remember seeing Laurence Olivier playing Rick Coriolanus when I was 11 years old, and it took my breath away. 
but I couldn't connect the two things. So I used to think of Shakespeare's this amazing world, but I couldn't relate that to boredom in the classroom. And when I started off in as an actor for the first 10 years, I worked around lots of regional theatres. I did quite a few Shakespeare's, but I used to think, I don't get it with Shakespeare. This is rubbish. I, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't understand it, and I'm pretty crap at doing it. And then I went to the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1978, and I met... Various people who had a huge influence on me. Patrick Stewart was one of them. Jeffrey Dench, who's Judy's brother. Jeff had been with the company for years. John Barton, uh, an actor who died a couple of years ago called Bernard Lloyd, who actually showed me how to open up a Shakespearean text as an actor and actually how Shakespeare, if you only know how to look at a speech, has left you all the clues about how to play it. And this girl said, blimey, Andrew, it's like he's left you a blueprint, isn't it, of how to act it? And that's, I did believe he has. And that's become my fascination because of that and the sheer beauty and the joy of being able to say it. Uh, in, in what was it, the mid-90s, as I mentioned already, I played Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream. And he has that wonderful speech, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlip and the nodding violet grows, quite over canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine. At that point, Oberon is on his own on the stage. And they used to start at the back of the stage, and we toured it all over Great Britain, all the major theatres in Great Britain, and gradually, as I did the speech, I used to move slowly forward to the front of the stage. And I could barely do it without a smile on my face. Because at the back of my mind, I was thinking, I am being paid to say this. I would pay somebody else to allow me to say it. Just to relish, you know, just sub submit myself to this language and to see if I could in any way come up to it. Um, the, the, one of the men who influenced me, this actor who I mentioned, Bernard Lloyd, my first job at the RSC, a very passionate Welshman who knew more in his little finger than I'll ever know in my entire body. We'd come off from a scene, I had a lot of my scenes with Bernie. It was my first time at the RSC. We'd come off and he'd look like thunder. In my paranoia, I would assume I'd done something wrong in the scene as we left the stage and went down to the restaurant. And I'd say, are you all right, Bernie? number of times he used to say, you never win with Shakespeare. Because he knew there's this immense area of expression, but you could never walk off the stage and say, I got it. Tonight, I got it. And that, to me, is the endless challenge. You keep having a go, but you never get there. Wondering, which is your favourite role? Leah is so unattainable. It's like Everest. I played it, well, you, you saw me rehearsing a bit of it in 2003 in Malibu. Just now and again, you glimpse the top of Everest and then the, then the clouds cover it again. And you struggle up the foothills trying to get there again. There's a wonderful saying about King Leah, by the time you're old enough to understand it, you're too old to play it. Richard was a joy because it was a 
he's so full of energy and life and wits and I love doing that. But I think objectively, although I've only ever understood him, I've never played him, I, I think Coriolanus is one of my favourite roles. I, I say I've never played him, I've understood it, that's all. But I think it, the language there is sublime. The Tempest, Prospero, I'd love to do that. Oh, the poetry in that is unbelievable. I really love that King Lear, the story unfolds in the present moment. It's very much in the here and now, and that's so relevant for today in the way we kind of consume the excitement and drama of sports and try and be mindful about being in the present moment. Is there a particular speech as you think about that right now that comes to mind that you might consider reciting? In the middle of the storm, blow winds and crack your cheeks. Uh, I've always seen it done as somebody kind of competing with a storm. But one of our great actors, Sir Donald Sindham, once said he wondered if it was probably right to play it as an invocation for the storm to come on further. No Richard III pair that I know Leah. So I'm not sure how many lines I can do to it before I peter out. Just a couple would but be let me great. Get, let me get, <laughs> it's a long time since I've said these words, my goodness. Blow winds and crack your cheeks. Blow, rage you hurricane spout till you have something that chimneys, something the cocks. I told you that wasn't very close to me anymore. Should I do a bit of Richard III for you? Yeah. I know that one better. It's kind of putting you, you know, on the spot so here, Andy. <laughs> yeah, he caught me out. Richard, I, Richard, I, I know, because I often use it with my students, so I'm good. Let me, do the, let me see if I can do the opening. Now is the winter of our discontent. Made glorious summer by the sun of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious plea of a lute. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I, that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I, that am curtailed of that fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, Unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, 
And that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I hold by them. Why I, in this weak, piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. Therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots are laid, inductions dangerous by drunken prophecies, libels and dreams, to set my brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate the one against the other. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false, and treacherous, this day Sir Clarence closely be mewed up about a prophecy which says that G of Edward's heirs the murderer shall be. Thy thoughts down to my soul, here Clarence comes. That's it. Thank you. That was so wonderful. <laughs> I'm hoping my <laughs> our listeners will really love to hear that talking of unfinished business in that speech your unfinished business with Shakespeare continues and I know last year that you had your first ever Shakespeare festival that you established in Kings Lynn Norfolk where you now live what are your hopes to continue the festival festival came into being because in we're very fortunate. In Kingsland, we have a 15th century guild hall. And I discovered the tradition that possibly Shakespeare had played there when he was on tour in 1592. And I pursued this story, and there seemed to be no clinching case for the fact that he was there, but there was strong evidence on both sides. And so I thought, right, let's look at this. So I've been very fortunate uh, in my life, that I, I became a board member of the British Shakespeare Association and have, as a result, got to know many very great Shakespeare scholars. So I contacted them and they agreed that they will come along and actually talk about this issue. What's the evidence for and against about Shakespeare being in King's Lynn? At the same time, I wanted to make it a celebration of performance. And luckily, I got, and this won't happen again, but Sir Ian McKellen. We had these lectures from my colleagues and the roundtable discussion about lots of Shakespearean things. I did an acting workshop about how to open up a Shakespeare text and he ended his shows. And this year I'm going to do two days and I'm going to use the same intellectual content. Hopefully I'm getting a couple of my colleagues from, again, the intellectual side, if you like, to come and talk about that. So I want that content, I want that rigorous kind of intellectual engagement with Shakespeare. I'm going to do a one-man show, which is my life as a journeyman actor, my life not as a star, but what is it like to be an ordinary actor, jobbing actor for 50-odd years? And I'm also going to do some acting workshops. And we're going to do that over two days uh, uh, as a kind of follow-up. And I've always been very struck by how humble you are and how in service to the work of Shakespeare in the way you just approach life. It's, it really 
beautiful to have seen your work unfold in so many different creative and very generously giving ways. What particular advice would you give to young actors these days who are starting out? I'm going to be talking to a young man tomorrow who wants advice about how to proceed, whether to go to drama school, what, what should you get an age of, what should you do, a young man who's passionate. But the one thing I shall say to him is if you want to be an actor, you have to need to be an actor as opposed to want to be an actor. If you want to be an actor, because most of the time you will spend not acting, you will give it up. If you need to be an actor, then you will go on. David Mamet, the famous playwright, wrote a book called True and False about acting. One of the great things he says in that, over 20 years, 20 years, every actor gets their moment, but you've got to be in it for 20 years to get that moment. So at the moment, it's driving me a little bit mad when I hear all these actors going, oh, it's been terrible during COVID because I've had to work as a delivery driver. I've, <laughs> over the 50 years, I've been a delivery driver, I don't know how many times. I've been a, worked in factories, I've done anything under the sun just to keep body and soul together. But that's why you need to be an, you need to be an actor and you'll still be there. What advice in terms of how, because I, I don't really know how theatre and film and will develop. Theatre, I think, is probably going to be a different beast. I was reading today about, certainly in television, if you want to spend your life pretending to be other people, you've got a need to be want to pretend to be other people. Okay, and the other thing I say to my students, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Do you view acting as an individual <coughs> pursuit or do you look at it as a team approach because there's directors and producers and designers? The best theatre to me is communal, where everybody comes together, actors, directors, technical people, designers, whatever, and you create something that you wish you didn't know you were going to create. When I direct, the most exciting moments to me are when I come out of a rehearsal session of four hours, and as I walk out of the rehearsal room, I'm like so excited because I think I had no idea we were going to get there today mm. because everybody is contributing. And what about what if we tried this? What if we did that answer? What if we did? And of course, at the end of the day, you've got to be up there doing your own thing as an actor. But then also, in my experience, the better the actor, the least selfish they are. For instance, I did uh, The Tempest with Ray Fiennes about 10 years ago now in the West End. I had a big speech on a couple of occasions when Rafe was on stage and he would automatically move downstage of me. In other words, so that I was looking at him there but the audience were there. Because he knew if he got downstage, the audience could see my face. If he stayed upstage, I'd be in profile. And so he'd move down quite deliberately because it was my moment mm -hmm. and I would do the same for him. And that's what it's about, that everybody, actors, crew, everybody, how do we tell this story? How do we serve this playwright? How do we tell it as clearly and as truthfully as we can? And we do that as a communal act. 
and not as a selfish act. I know that you are thinking of bringing Shakespeare to the football field, and that's English for football. How do you envisage that happening? It goes back to, in the 1980s, I worked for a director called Michael Bogdanov, who was very politically engaged and believed that Shakespeare was for everyone. And that it was, you know, he was bored and fed up with how the RSC and the National did it. We worked on the two parts of Henry IV and Henry V, but we took it out. And suddenly, because of the way Michael worked, clear storytelling, I remember being in Nottingham at the Theatre Royal in Nottingham, and I went in the pub after the show. And normally people will come up and say, oh, can I just say, I really did enjoy it. You know, this bloke came up to me and he said, so afterwards, uh, did you go out to Scotland or what? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I realised he was talking about my character. as a character called the Douglas who has come from Scotland to join the war. And so I told him what I thought probably happened. And he said, I said, Blimey, he said I'm a miner. He said, and uh, I'm, me and my mate, she said, we've come into Nottingham, we've got to go to this course at the college. And they give us these tickets to come to Shakespeare. And I said, oh, I didn't want to come. We said, that fat bloke who we're on tonight. I said, what, Falstaff? <laughs> yeah. Is he on tomorrow? I said, yeah. Whoa, coming back. She said, oh, I like that. I will like that. All right. Now, when I told Michael, the director, it was worth five Oscars, five Olivier's, because that's what it's about. It's contacting ordinary people. This is not special stuff. If it's done well, it will talk to you. Shakespeare's theatre had working class people in it. Yes, there were all classes there. But in the yard, they were working class, ordinary people who listened. And they talked about going to listen to a play. So I have contacted my local football club here because I saw a piece that was saying they were wanting sponsors for the coming season. And I'm going to have a hoarding at the football ground because I want the same people who go to watch Kingsland Town Football Club to think they can also come and see the Kingsland Shakespeare Festival. Good luck with that. And I know you think about all sport being full of drama. How does an actor bring that little piece of unpredictability to their performances. So, you know, the audience already knows the outcome of the story if they've seen the play before. Well, it's about, it goes back to that communal effort. The directors like Rafe. I did 298 performances of The Woman in Black in the West End in London. Just two people. I was the older actor, I was the younger actor. When we were about to finish, lots of our friends came to see it and they said, what to Tim, this other actor for me, could it would the best thing they could say. They didn't say, Oh, you're wonderful, it was brilliant. Blah, blah, blah. They said it seemed so fresh. And that was the best thing anybody could have said. Because what Tim and I did, we never really talked about it, but being similar actors, we went out every night, but to discover it again. That's what happened every night. And that you go, it may be my 298th time, but for this audience, it's their first. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, darling, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the InScape Quest podcast with Trudy Howley. If you like this show and want to send questions or submit topics you'd like to hear about on your podcast, 
You can find me on Instagram at InscapeQuest. Thank you for listening and for your shares, subscriptions and downloads. Cheerio.